And we welcome you to the Tuesday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. That wonderful music, which it pains me to pot down, is Take Me to the Water, a composition by my very special morning show guest today, Dr. Rollo Dilworth. And with me in the studio as well, Dr. Peter Denae, a faculty colleague of mine from Carthage College, from the music faculty. Uh, Dr. Denae has put together a very exciting festival tomorrow that is going to draw a number of high school treble chorales to the Carthage campus for a very special concert to tomorrow afternoon at 4.20, uh, which will culminate in the world premiere of a brand new work by uh, Dr. Rollo Dilworth, who is one of the country's most esteemed, prolific, uh, and and busy choral uh, composers and arrangers, in addition to being a very important educator as well, vice dean and professor of choral music education at Temple University in Philadelphia. And he has made time in his schedule to craft a brand new work, uh, a setting of the 23rd Psalm that will receive its world premiere tomorrow. And he will be working uh, with these various students in uh, clinics all day tomorrow. And uh, I am so glad that in a busy schedule, there is time for us to have him on the morning show. So in our studios today, Dr. Peter Denae and Dr. Rollo Dilworth, we welcome both of you. Thank you. Thank you. It's ter- terrific to have both of you here. Dr. Denae, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the genesis of this particular festival and if this is, uh, in a sense, kind of a first. Uh, actually, no, it's not a first. It's it's the first time we've done it in the fall. We've been doing it in the spring, and um, and probably about this is about the fifth or sixth one that we've done, and, and it's it's it's... This is the, the second time that we've had so many schools respond, and I think it's, uh, again, like you were saying, that, that it is Rollo, and I think it's such a recognizable name that people have done his music. The last one, the other one that was we had, I think, five or six choirs was Joan Shimko, who also is very um, prolific in, in, in writing and has lots of music available and um, wrote a beautiful piece for us. But we've also had Abby Bettinas here and um, Jocelyn Hagen and... Um, Laura Smiley, mm-hmm. um, and 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 so this is, this is this is probably about the fourth or fifth one that we've done. Yeah. So what's involved in putting together an invitation and, and sort of figuring <laughs> out who you want to go after and how do you snare them, especially yeah, when it's good somebody busy? Yeah. I mean, I, I've known Rollo, I think, for probably about thirteen years or so, um, 
and 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 obviously have known his music and have done different pieces and and so just every year I try and think about you know who who would I like to to work with again and and um, so it's always it, all of the people that I've mentioned are people that I've known from other experiences and um, and so I knew Rollo and I and I knew that that I, and I also try and think who who how could we have who who would how what would be a good way to get choirs to want to participate so you pick somebody that that makes them um, want to be a part of it and have their students experience the uh, working with with somebody um, of his stature um, so I so I thought about Rollo and then I sent an email and um, and we talked about and I and I and I actually recommended the Marilyn once he said he was interested I recommended the Marilyn Nelson text and shared that with him I guess the most important thing is to talk about a Kenosha community member Mary Dixon who has been really um, incredibly generous and supportive of these projects, and and they couldn't they could not happen without her. Um, that it does cost money to commission music, um, and because it, it, it's somebody's job, right, Rollo? <laughs> <laughs> and, and so so Mary has been. Um, when I talk to her about projects that I want to do, she's oftentimes very supportive and wanting to to to, to mm-hmm. support that. So. Um, so uh, she'll be there. I'm, I'm counting on her being there tomorrow so that she can meet Rollo and, and hear the premiere as well. Fantastic. And we do want to reiterate that the public is welcome to come to tomorrow afternoon's concert to hear five different five, high, five high school choirs and my choir as well. And, um, and it's an unusual time. It's um, at 4.20 in the afternoon, and that, that's mainly because I'd – I'm conscious of um, we're getting close to Christmas festival, and I don't want to take my students' time with an evening concert, mm. and and so it's kind of lining up with the time that I normally rehearse my treble choir, so I know that they're all available and can mm-hmm. be there. Um, so that's that's so it's four twenty. Um, so it's 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 and, and it works for the because because the schools are there all day, it gets them home at a reasonable time, too. Yeah, works out actually really well. So anybody who happens to be free, uh, come and enjoy what will surely be a very, very exciting concert of music culminating in this world premiere, which we'll talk about further. And we should also add that this is a free concert, but you do need to have a ticket. Yeah, if you go to the, just type in Carthage Box Office on Google, and you'll get to the place where you can find um, tickets there. You have to have a ticket to get in. It's free, um, um, but you have to come in and you, with with uh, either on your phone or print out the ticket so that um, we're 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 conscious of um, and and masks are required um, and we're conscious of that as we're doing these things, keeping safe. Very good. Well, it's time to learn more about our. Uh our very special guest, Dr. Rollo Dilworth. And I have to say, first of all, it's so interesting to meet you in person after having played on the piano. I don't know how many of your pieces uh, in my capacity as the accompanist down at Tremper High School where my sister-in-law, Polly Amborn, is, is the choral director. And so it's so fun to put a face and a voice with what up to now has just been a name plastered on all kinds of different uh, arrangements and compositions over the years. Again, we welcome you to the Morning Shore. So glad you're here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, it would be fun, of course, to begin at the beginning with uh, where all of this started for you uh, in the wonderful city of St. Louis, where I know you were born and raised. It sounds like from a pretty early age, music became really important to you. Was that in part because you had very musical parents? 
Well, interestingly enough, uh, my, my parents are not musical. I'm, I'm the only person in my family who pursued music, but I had uh, really supportive family members and a very supportive music educators um, who were both in my school and in my church and in my neighborhood, in my community, who really nurtured uh, my my work uh, as a as a young student and really wanted to see me pursue higher levels of training hmm. and uh, so I feel very fortunate because uh, I I was surrounded by a community of of people who really wanted to support uh, me as a as a young musician as a young artist growing up. I heard you say in an interview that. Uh one of your first music teachers who meant a great deal to you and really championed you and encouraged you to go into music, you say something in this interview to the effect that she saw in you a passion for music that you didn't yourself know you had. Do you remember saying something like that? I Am do. I remembering that correctly? I do. That's very true. And I think that that's the mark of an exceptional educator, a person who can see the potential in the student when the student may not be able to see those possibilities. And I, I found myself really taking to her because I think that her words of encouragement helped me to move forward and helped me to excel and helped me to grow. And uh, I'm, very, I'm very thankful for that. And I think that's in part why I'm not only a musician to this day, but also a music educator. Hmm. So was singing and piano always kind of dual interests and just about equal in terms of what they gave you? I mean, and were those kind of, in a sense, different experiences for you, or did they give you kind of different pleasures, or were, were they just both kind of just swallowed up in this big thing called music? I think they both worked together hand in hand. I remember in first grade, before I started taking piano lessons, I started um, working on the keyboard in second grade and taking formal lessons by the time I was in fourth. But I was singing when I was six years old. I learned my numbers and my parts of speech and how to be kind to other people through singing. And once I was able to translate what I was doing vocally onto the keyboard, I think that there was just a great partnership there between both the, the vocals and, and the, the instrumental. So I've heard that what really got you on the path of arranging and ultimately composing was uh, the simple act of taking music home from school, I assume, and working on it. I mean, like working to learn your particular vocal line, I suppose, or maybe sometimes working on the accompaniment if you were responsible for that. But then it went beyond just learning the music to tinkering. Explain how that began to happen. Sure. I think that it was really a matter of curiosity for me. When I was a little kid, as you said, I would come home from my choir rehearsals and I would put the music down at the piano. I would study my vocal part, but I would also study the piano part. I also found myself studying everybody else's vocal mm -hmm. part and just out of curiosity wanting to know what would the music sound like if I started altering some of the rhythms, altering some of the pitches, and in some cases even altering some of the lyrics. And I would occasionally jot down some of my ideas and take them back to my music teacher and on manuscript paper, and I would hold it up to her and I would say, can we try it this way? And she never, ever discouraged me. And she would say to me, 
I think you have what it takes to be an arranger and a composer. And I really didn't even know what that was at the time. I think I was about 11 years old. But what I did know is that my curiosities allowed me to continue to explore and examine what possibilities existed out there uh, in terms of creating music. Hmm. I've heard you say that the work that you do now as a composer and arranger I think the word I heard you use was feed. That work feeds your work as a conductor and as a clinician. And in turn, that work feeds your your life as a composer and arranger. Can you kind of explain how that sort of circle of energy works and how the one energizes the other? Absolutely. I believe that all of these components are connected to each other. And my work as a composer... I think enhances my life as a music educator because much of the work that I arrange and compose are are designed in a way to to support musicians in their growth and their development to meet them where they are but to also perhaps push them toward a higher level of of artistry and I also think that as a composer I I know, as a conductor, I should say, I know what it's like to have to be the advocate for the composer. Uh, I think that Eric Leinsdorf talks about that, being the composer's advocate. Mm. So I, I see myself, when I'm conducting a piece of music, wanting to be sure that I am advocating for the composer, while at the same time tending to the the artistic needs of the singers that are in front of me. So I do see all of these things as being connected, and I think because I'm both a conductor, a composer, and an educator, I get to see how this process works from all of these angles and the interconnectedness between them. Hmm. We're speaking with Dr. Rallo Dilworth, one of the country's most renowned and prolific uh, choral music composers and arrangers and choral music educators. He is here at the invitation of Carthage College and Dr. Peter Denay uh, for the treble uh, chorale uh, festival that's going to be occurring tomorrow. Five area treble chorales plus the treble chorale at Carthage. And ultimately tomorrow afternoon's concert will culminate in a world premiere of a brand new setting of the 23rd Psalm uh, in a beautiful translation of it by Marilyn Nelson. We'll talk about that piece uh, in, in, in just a little bit. Uh, Talk for just a moment about the work that you have done as a music educator. And uh, I heard you say at some point that uh, one of the things that really sort of grabbed your heart uh, in the early going was working with middle school. And, of course, this is a, uh, a can be a very difficult battleground, especially if that's not where your particular gifts are and if you don't have a whole lot of patience and wisdom and so on. But it sounds like that was an arena in which you really thrived uh, as an educator. Can you tell us what that connection was that was so powerful for you? Sure. Thank you for, for first of all, asking that question and giving a shout out to all middle school music educators out there. I started out 30, 30 years ago teaching middle school uh, in my hometown of St. Louis, Missouri, and I've always been attracted to teaching developing voices because I know how difficult it can be. That's a transition point for a lot of young people, and it may be the last opportunity a music educator has 
to really get singers excited about being young artists. And for myself, my voice didn't change until I was 15 years old. Mm. And I was already a junior in high school by that time. And so I found myself dealing with voice change a little bit later than than maybe most middle schoolers. But Mm. I really wanted to be a person to help students with that transition uh, in terms of their vocal development. But I also wanted to be able to write and arrange music that had texts and themes and ideas that would appeal to them and to um, to empower them and to not just use the music as an opportunity to develop them as artists, but also to, de- to develop them as young people. So how can you find music? I couldn't find a lot of music then that had messages and themes that would resonate with them. So I would, I would create my own arrangements or we would, we would write our, create our own music. So that's why I think I was very drawn to teaching middle school students. And even to this day, even though I'm teaching at the college level, I still enjoy the opportunities to work with that age group. Mm. And so in a sense, it was necessity being the mother of a special kind of invention for you. That is, uh, you you found yourself really uh, energized by the challenge of trying to craft music in terms of its content and its musical demands that would really work for, for instance, the middle schoolers or junior high musicians that you were working with. I mean, that was that was a simpler solution than scouring the earth trying to find things that already existed. It was a simpler and better solution for you to just create some things yourself. Absolutely, absolutely, and it was it was much easier to collaborate with the students in real time in the classroom to figure out what vocal ranges they were working with, so I could craft the music to fit where they could be successful, and particularly with those boys changing voices, um, it was it was often important to get immediate feedback from them in real time as to what vocal lines I could can create, or we could co-create really, in order to ensure their comfort and their success, and meet them where they were in in their in their development. And I suppose those are for, uh, limitations that, at a glance, might seem to be frustrating, and maybe. Once in a while they are, but I should think it's also incredibly gratifying when you can craft a compelling, interesting piece of music that's been written within those confines of, for instance, how how narrow a range the typical adolescent uh, mm-hmm. young male, for instance. Uh, that's an interesting challenge. Mm-hmm. It is. It's a, it's a very interesting challenge, but I also think that it's an opportunity to to help students to feel empowered and also to keep them excited about being in vocal music. I want to play something that you crafted, I assume, with uh, middle school or junior high voices in mind. This is a piece of yours called Walk in Jerusalem. And this is a recording from the 2011 uh, American Choral uh, uh, Directors Association convention right down the road in Chicago with the junior high and middle school honor choir. Anything you want to say about Walk in Jerusalem before we hear just a little bit from it? Walk in Jerusalem is an African-American spiritual, and I indeed wanted to uh, wrote that arrangement for Young Voices. Uh, it's a piece about uh, freedom, uh, and it's a piece uh, about people coming together from, from all walks of life and, and celebrating. So um, I hope that the audience enjoys hearing a clip of this arrangement. Here it is, Walk in Jerusalem. 
That is middle school and junior high singers <laughs> rendering that uh, so impressively. Walk in Jerusalem from the National Convention of the ACDA back in 2011. Uh, we're speaking today with Dr. Rollo Dilworth, a very highly esteemed choral music uh, composer and arranger. Uh, and uh, Dr. Peter Dene is with us as well, the organizer of the latest treble uh, chorale festival at Carthage, which is happening tomorrow, culminating in a special concert tomorrow afternoon uh, at 4.20 in Siebert Chapel. And you are welcome to attend if you uh, secure a free ticket on Carthage's website uh, to enjoy a number of different guest choirs coming, as well as Carthage's treble chorale and the world premiere of a brand new setting of the 23rd Psalm. And we'll talk about that uh, in in just a moment. Uh, you have fostered a, a very positive relationship with Hal Leonard uh, Music Publishing. And uh, in just a second, we're going to hear a little bit from the very first piece, which they published uh, for you a long, long time ago, uh, back in 1999, I think, if I have my, my name, uh, my, my dates correct, Everlasting Melody. Um, talk for a moment about kind of the, the rigors of producing music and especially when you're not writing for for instance your own group of junior high singers i remember advice i was given many years ago uh by the great alice parker when she came to visit carthage and uh my wife was the one who had the guts to ask her what would be your advice for a young aspiring uh, music composer meaning me and uh and alice parker's uh, advice was write for voices you know and, and instead of trying to write music that for the whole universe that you hope the whole universe will love write music that you know your own church choir or school choir or whatever will know and love and be able to sing and flourish and so on and that's been very valuable advice for me and i'm sure many of your composing situations are like that and then probably the, there are others that are not in which you don't necessarily have that the galvanization of really specific voices that you know by heart. Uh, is that a challenge? Uh, I mean, in terms of who you're writing for? I think it really can be uh, challenging if you're not very sure of the vocal capabilities of, of the ensemble that, that you're writing for. And so I really do try very hard, as Alice Parker mentioned, to know who you're writing for and know where the limitations of your ensemble might be but also know where the possibilities for growth might be. You don't want to make the piece so easy that they have no difficulties learning it. You don't want to make it so difficult that it that it's becomes frustrating for the ensemble. So I think that's where I put my music educator hat on as, mm. I am, as I'm composing, because I'm always trying to look very carefully and think, okay, can this choir perhaps handle this rhythm or this particular interval? Or is this an opportunity for them to, to grow in some way, whether it's the rhythm or the, the style of the music uh, that they may be performing? So that can be difficult. Right. My, one of my uh, uh, experiences with Hal Leonard with a, with a piece was something that in its original form was a, they, they thought was a little too hard, and they asked for the difficulty to be ratcheted down just a little bit. Uh, and, of course, I was nobody, and I was happy to do that. And I suspect for you, in your first dealings with Hal Leonard, when the world didn't yet know who uh, Rollo Dilworth was, it was probably an experience, I, I'm guessing, where they perhaps had a little heavier editorial hand, as opposed to now, I suspect 
what comes in the mail from Rollo Dilworth is what goes on the page <laughs> and goes out to the world without too much meddling from the good folks at Al Leonard. Is that kind of is that a fair representation of the arc there? It was certainly a learning process to begin with uh, in the earlier years. Um, thankfully, I still have wonderful editors at Hal Leonard who will still take a, a very keen eye to what I'm writing and say, well, are, are you sure of this? Is this something that can be done? I do remember in, in the earlier days, I, I wrote a piano part for one piece that was probably a little bit, let's just say, off the charts. <laughs> and my editor said, uh, can you take that out? <laughs> so it, it is a learning process, and, and I'm really grateful for, for my wonderful relationship, 20-plus-year uh, relationship with Hal Leonard, and uh, it, it has really been a, an extraordinary journey. So uh, we want to hear just a little bit of this very per- first piece that Hal Leonard published for you called uh, Everlasting Melody. What do you want to say about this? Everlasting Melody was written as a commission for my friends David and Beverly Barr for as a wedding present. Uh, and ah. they, they themselves uh, were at the time conductors of a uh, youth choir, a children's choir in the Chicagoland area. And I had no idea that this piece would become one of the centerpieces of my catalog mm. to this day. Wow. And so... I, I hope that people enjoy it. <laughs> this is from the 2014 ACDA Children's Honor uh, Convention uh, performance, so of uh, Rollo Dilworth's Everlasting Melody. almost said this a uh, blast from the past since this is your first piece published by Hal Leonard but it's uh, a blast from the present because all kinds of people are still performing this this piece they, they are indeed and I think maybe for, for a couple reasons one uh, I think that there's this groove there that I try to 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 create to engage young people in particular but also um, the message this idea that, we can use music as a tool in our lives to lift us up and to inspire us 
when times are great and even when times are not so great. Right. And and I have found many people, I'm sure all all of us have, who um, who find music uh, as as really kind of uh, that that elixir, if you will, that that uh, calms us down, lifts us up, and and keeps us going. Absolutely, it's uh, it's our companion in uh, good times and bad alike. Absolutely, this of course is a completely original composition of yours, m- words and music both. Yes, words yeah. and music, which is rare for me. Yeah, uh, of course, the world knows you uh, so well for your amazing arrangements of spirituals. We're going to hear uh, from another in just a moment. I wanted to ask you uh, about the distinction between spirituals in the most sort of authentic way that we use that term versus when we sometimes call a piece of music a spiritual that actually does not originate from the uh, experience of slaves and is not you know, an anonymous work passed down uh, over the generations, but something that somebody sat down and, and wrote. And, and, and some would say, in the purest sense of the word, that's not exactly a spiritual. Um, I wonder if those distinctions of terminology matter very much to you, for instance. How do you like to think of, of the term and, 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 in a sense, of the genre? That's a very good question. I, I think of spirituals in their most authentic sense and of course one can sort of debate what is authentic and what is not because folk music uh, like the spiritual as it is passed on from generation to generation and moves from one region to the next it is changed and altered to some degree but I think that when we think about spirituals we do think about these slave songs and when I think about pieces that are written in the style of a spiritual I do make that distinction and I think it's very important to do so because the opportunity for us to dig into the cultural and historical context of a spiritual is very different from the experience of digging into a piece of music that was written in the style of a spiritual. Maybe in, maybe in 1930 or, 19, or 1990. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So I think that there, there is an, a, a distinction to be made there. And particularly for historical and cultural reasons. Mm. On a real musical level, when you take on a a spiritual, um, are there particular things that you are thinking about in terms of remaining true to the kind of the heart of the spiritual um, versus, and I don't mean this in any way negatively, but adding kind of the bells and whistles and flourish that, of course, are a hallmark, not only of your arrangements, but of many other arrangements that... I mean, I can't imagine the world without them. But in a sense, part of the really unique beauty of spirituals is that, that there is, in a sense, a, a, a marvelous simplicity and selflessness about them or lack of self-consciousness about them. Uh, and I think the wrong kind of arrangement can sometimes obscure that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Do you think about that very much as mm-hmm. you arrange? I, I do. I often think about those things because the, the spiritual, as we know, started off as a folk tradition, and it moved, particularly uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, into the concert halls. And so the spiritual became not just uh, this this folk idiom that was you know, being performed in very informal ways, but it it became much more formalized. So as I'm creating an arrangement, I'm trying to think of many things, but first and foremost, I want to preserve 
the melody. Mm. I have to do that. And I may arrange it for eight parts a cappella. I may um, arrange it for piano and uh, voices and even add, you know, sort of blues, jazz, gospel uh, traditions to it. And and I ex- always explain that in mm. the, the liner notes because I think it's very important because as the spiritual with any genre has evolved over the years, it has um, moved into uh, the African-American church, and which means you would often hear it either unaccompanied or accompanied by piano and organ. It may have more of a sort of simplistic framework to it, or it may be gospelized, mm. or some <laughs> some jazz licks may be added to it, or some blues uh, types of styling. So um, I try to address that in in um, my my commentary about my particular arrangements to help the the singers and the educators understand sort of the evolution of of the spiritual, but also my particular treatment of it uh, from a contextual standpoint. Hmm. Well, I don't think anybody arranges spirituals better than you do. Uh, Thank you. (laughs) I I enjoy them, and I respect so much uh, the attitude with which you do what you do. Uh, I want to play just a a few moments from your arrangement of Little David, Play on Your Heart, which is is, uh, designed, this arrangement at least, for elementary students, elementary, so very young singers, and this is from the 2013 CMEA Elementary Honors Choir in Hartford, Connecticut. Do you have anything you want to say about this uh, wonderful spiritual and your arrangement? This is a fun and exciting spiritual because um, it, it uh, like many spirituals, uh, reflects a, an Old Testament uh, biblical narrative, and, um, and so Again, I'm trying to to educate students about the history of these pieces and where they come from and why they are the way they are. And uh, I I hope that that young people in particular enjoy, enjoy this arrangement. Here we go. breaks my heart to uh, <laughs> oh <laughs> to just just such a uh, uh, cute sound you know they're just they're oh, just so sweet you can absolutely hear absolutely incredible and they're doing some wonderful singing and mm-hmm. uh, of not a particularly simple piece either i wonder too as i'm listening to that and to certain wonderful inflections that belong uh, to this tradition how difficult is it to put those down on paper uh, extremely yeah right i mean that they're it, it it seems like at its very heart, it's a genre that defies notation and that sometimes 
you you would have to almost just demonstrate what you want these particular notes to sound like versus being able to put ink on the paper that would tell a singer immediately exactly what to do. You're absolutely right. The the written score probably only tells 50% of the story. And what's um what's exciting for for me as a music educator is to help teachers to understand that everything that they need to know about the piece is not necessarily contained on the paper. Mm. So as as the teachers are learning the style, they have to be able to become vocal models for their students. And in essence, it's it's not only the piece of paper that is the score, but the teacher also becomes the score mm. in which uh, the students have to begin to interpret and um, and understand the stylistic nuances that uh, cannot quite... Um, be written down on on paper uh, <laughs> using five lines and four spaces. Right, yes. and it can vary performance to performance. Absolutely. I'm reminded of a saying. I have no idea who said this, but the the, the essence of it is: music is art. The paint is never dry. Mm-hmm. You know, meaning that uh, even even something that you think of as a final product perfectly polished, there's still mm-hmm. something that happens when you bring human beings in to perform. It. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about this exciting world premiere that's going to be occurring uh, tomorrow afternoon. This is a brand new poetic setting of the 23rd Psalm uh, uh, by poet uh, Marilyn Nelson, uh, professor emerita of English at the University of Connecticut. I've seen her described as a poet contemplative, uh, and this is certainly a breathtakingly beautiful translation of the familiar 23rd Psalm, and it from what you were telling me before we went on the air, this is the first time you've said a text by Marilyn Nelson. This is. This is the first time. Uh, I was a little bit familiar with her work through some uh, poetry anthologies, but once I received this opportunity and assignment from, from <laughs> Dr. Denis, I, I've started to dig a little bit more into her work, and I'm just fascinated by, by her treatment of this psalm text. So... This came first. I mean, you were presented with by Dr. Denae by this text and and asked to set it to music. And and did you only agree to it after you saw the text, or did you sort of take it on faith that this is something I can set? I took a look at the text, and to be honest with you, I I wasn't quite sure if I could set it appropriately, but I wanted to take it on because the text itself was extremely gripping and compelling. Do you want to read the uh, text, or uh, or I can otherwise, whatever you prefer. Okay. So this is Marilyn Nelson's uh, take, if, if you will, on the 23rd Psalm. Adonai, my shepherd, I know no need. In lush meadows you invite my soul to rest and recline. Together we walk beside the dance of light on quiet waters. You give me back myself, point me to the road toward justice, one of your sacred names. Even when I walk in a valley dark as the shadow of death, I know no fear, for you are near me. With your staff and crook, and I am safe. You spread out a feast before me with those who were my enemies. You touch my head with fragrant oil, my thanks overflows. May goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life, and may I make my home in the house of the Lord forever. It's amazing. There's so much music to be found uh, in those words before music has literally been added to them. And yet, I suppose you have to figure out 
what exactly is the best music to bring these words further to life? Indeed, I, I had to figure out the mood of the the, the text, but also um, stylistically what would would make these words come to life. Uh, my job is always to amplify the words of the poet and create musical experiences that hopefully won't take away from that. Mm. So there's there's always that challenge there, but I I I really had a wonderful time and and chose to use the Adonai my shepherd, I have I know no need as as sort of the refrain the the refrain that comes back and then the rest of the text really sort of um, fits what we would consider to be verses in in the piece. Um, so I'm really excited to to have this opportunity. Well, it's exquisite. I mean, all I have, Dr. Denae shared a, a copy of it, so I've plunked it on the piano, but I've not heard this sung, and I can just, I can hear it in my head, but I, I'm excited for the uh, experience of hearing it actually live uh, in, in the room. And again, this is going to be uh, tomorrow afternoon uh, with uh, five area high school treble chorales, as well as the treble chorale from Carthage joining together in the singing of this. Uh, does this get old? I mean, you've had this experience quite a lot of writing a piece and it's unveiled for the world. Uh, I mean, uh, someone uh, at the start of their career, I should think it would be uh, incredible. After you've done this dozens, maybe hundreds of times by now, uh, what does the experience feel like? I am still overjoyed uh, after all these years because every every experience is a new experience, of course, and the opportunity to to write piece a piece like this is is incredibly um, exciting for me because I was telling Dr. Denis earlier before this this radio show that most of the time I am writing. I'm setting the words of poets who are no longer alive. Mm. So to have the opportunity to collaborate in this way with a living poet is is very exciting for me, and I look forward to to meeting her uh, via via Zoom tomorrow. Fantastic! Yeah. Yeah. So she's going to be part of this then, in that respect. That's right. She's um, she's going to be uh, during our rehearsal. We're going to have her um, on Zoom and be able to hear it for the first time and to to offer some responses um, if she's if she's wanting to. But I, I'm guessing that she will. Um, and I, I have um, I'm only been dealing with her agent, hmm. um, so it's kind of. Um, through her agent, but I know that she's thrilled that it's happening and, and wanting to be a part of it. How exciting. Yeah. That's wonderful. Uh, and she is, again, responsible, uh, Marilyn Nelson, for this lovely setting of the 23rd Psalm set to music by uh, our other very special guest today, Dr. Rollo Dilworth. This work receives its world premiere tomorrow afternoon at this very special concert at Carthage. Again, go to carthage.edu slash tickets or box office uh, to, to find a way to uh, secure your free ticket to enjoy tomorrow afternoon's concert. Dr. Dilworth, I wanted to mention that of all the things I've seen you or heard you say about music, I think one of my very favorites is when you say, we help our singers to understand the world around them. Towards that end, the last thing I want to play uh, is the last couple minutes of one of my favorite pieces by you, which is called Harriet Tubman, uh, sung here by the University of Michigan Men's Glee Club, very quickly, anything you want to say about this? This piece uh, really, uh, 
really describes the journey uh, of Harriet Tubman. And uh, it's a very powerful text by Eloise Greenfield. And uh, I hope that the listeners enjoy this uh, really uh, fantastic performance by the University of Michigan Men's Glee Club. And Dr. Rallo Dilworth, thank you so much for uh, getting up bright and early on this Tuesday morning to be the guest on The Morning Show. It was a real honor and pleasure to have you here. And with you, uh, Dr. Peter Dene, thank Thank you you so much. Thank you. And here is the closing couple minutes of Harriet Tubman by Dr. Rallo Dilworth. The extraordinary composition Harriet Tubman by Dr. Rollo Dilworth. Again, he is uh, on the campus of Carthage College and uh, here in Kenosha uh, both today and tomorrow. And this very special concert tomorrow afternoon is at Siebert Chapel at 420. It is a free concert, but you do need to secure a free ticket in order to attend. Go to carthage.edu and in the search bar type box office and you will be drawn right to the site where you can reserve your free ticket for that concert.